This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. My guest today is the Emeritus Professor Sir Barry Cunliffe. Now, his book I have been delving into, published by OUP, his latest book, Facing the Sea of Sand. It's absolutely wonderful. The Sahara and the Peoples of Northern Africa. Um, Professor Cunliffe, Facing the Sea of Sand, the Sahara. Is the Sahara, when I've flown over it and seen it, it just looks to be one bit of sand after another. Has it always been like that? Well, first of all, it's not one bit of sand. Um, it's uh, it's very complex. It's seas of sand, but um, broken up by rocky outcrops and stony plateaus. It's very, very varied. But it's not always been a desert. No, no. Um, it uh, during the Ice Age, when we had an Ice Age in in Britain and Northern Europe. During the Ice Age, there was a period of um, uh, extreme heat and dryness, which created a desert. But um, at the end of the Ice Age, roughly about 10,000 BC, um, when the um, temperature began to change, change quite rapidly, um, the, the what was a desert, the Sahara, um, became um, uh, woodlands and um, pasture land pasture lands um, and, and a very, very fine environment for people to live in. And it, it lasted like that. It was called the African humid period. So it was, was wetter. Um, and so the desert was occupiable from about 10,000 BC to about 3000 BC without any problem at all. And then after 3000 BC, roughly 3000 BC, it began to get drier and drier and drier and drier until it is the sort of desert it is now. Um, you, uh, I've always thought of you as uh, a man who likes to dig and find stuff, uh, the joy of archaeology. So is there a lot for an archaeologist to find? Oh, yes, there's a, a huge amount. Africa is so rich. It's uh, The archaeologists have barely touched the surface of Africa. It's um, uh, a lot of Major discoveries have been made since about 1960, and um, we're still trying to get them into some sort of context. And um, what I've tried to do is, uh, what I'm really interested in is connectivity, how people are all in um, contact with each other. Um, no, no, no man is an island, that idea, you know, we, we are all part um, of one world. And um, uh, I, I've always thought that Africa has been dealt with in the past rather as something separate it, it, it's it's a continent it's it, it's looked at separately and um I, I see it as part of eurasia part of europe asia and africa all part of the old world and all interacting so um what we've tried to do in this book is to show how um africa really is part of the old world how it receives ideas from the old world and it gives ideas to the old world so um and a different way of looking at it really and um what we've got to work on essentially throughout most of the period is just archaeological evidence um very little real historical evidence until we get into uh well the roman period touches it slightly and then when the arabs come uh, we get more information gradually um, the texts begin to take over where where there was only archaeology before and so that just take me through if an archaeologist gets excited because they find something, what would that something be? 
it rather depends where you are but if if you're in an area like um the sahel for example the 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 um the long strip of land immediately south of the desert and before you get to the forests of the congo that sort of uh, area where the savanna is giving way to sort of dusty areas um uh, that that is almost uh, always um uh uh, under conditions where organic material wouldn't survive. So what you would tend to find are, are the things that wouldn't rot, um, which um, very early on would be stone tools, uh, possibly bone tools, um, pieces of pottery, that kind of thing. And, and of course, any metal that that, that was there. Um, but only occasionally do you get a really good wet condition where something survives. There's a, a wonderful dugout log boat from Nigeria, which dates to about 6,000 BC, almost perfectly preserved, because it has always, for the last 8,000 years, it has always been waterlogged. So you occasionally get these, these unusual conditions, but normally you're dealing with broken bits of pottery and broken bits of stone, and you've got to make sense of all that. And when you make sense of it, are these all produced by people like us, Homo sapiens? Oh no, no, no. Um, uh, in in Africa, um, Africa was where um, humans uh, evolved, and uh, we can trace from um, uh, human bones in Africa, mainly in East Africa and the the um, Rift Valley areas, that sort of area up to Ethiopia. Um, you can trace the evolution of of humans. It, it's it, it's the most amazing story how um, you get this break between these australopithecines and homonyms um, and then uh, the homonyms develop and develop and develop but most of this early development goes on in Africa and gradually you get people's uh, early humans moving out of Africa uh, into well across into Asia into into Europe um, and eventually um, long after this has all begun eventually roughly about 100 to 125,000 BC, um, we're into humans as we would recognize them, Homo sapiens like ourselves. And uh, they people the whole of Africa and then move out of Africa uh, into Europe um, and move um, east and end up, of course, in Australia, uh, the, um, uh, about um, uh, 50,000 years later. So um, Africa is where it all, where we all begin. Right. And presumably, when we started, we were hunter-gatherers, would we be? Uh, absolutely. Um, you'd start um, uh, simply as a hunter-gatherer. And um, the early humans, um, homonyms, divided off from, from the apes early on. The apes tended to go to the forests, and the early homonyms tended to move into the savannah, the, uh, the um, bushy areas, um, which meant that they had to learn to move in a different way. They couldn't swing from trees or anything, so they became bipedal. Um, and once you're bipedal, um, your um, arms, your front, your front legs, as it were, um, uh, were available for picking things up and making tools. And and, uh, and once you're starting to do that, you're hunting um, and um, hunting and collecting as well, um, collecting berries, collecting fungi, 
um, collecting nuts, all that sort of thing. So it was a mix, mixed economy. And um, as, as time went on, um, the, the early hunter-gatherers became more and more sophisticated. And those that settled down uh, in the, what, what is now the Sahara, uh, were um, really very sophisticated. They were um, there, there were um, goats, um, which which they were wild, but they encouraged them to stay near to the farms by sort of throwing out some food. So there was always a goat for you to grab when you wanted one, um, and um, they, they didn't um, cultivate grains or cereals, uh, but they they knew where the best grains were growing. And um, uh, so they were almost sedentary hunter-gatherers. Um, they knew where their food supplies were and they developed their tools to suit. You can find um, a fish spears made of bone, um, harpoon-like fish spears from these settlement sites. You can find um, sickles made of flint blades, um, which were used for um, cutting um, the, the wild grasses and, and the wild seeds. And these sickles have got gloss on them where the, um, the silica in the um, stems of, of the, the grasses has polished the, the, the stone. So um, there's a lot of evidence of um, different kinds of hunter-gatherer techniques. Um, and uh, some people were sort of hunting big wild animals, but most kept to the fairly small ones. And were they one homogenous mass or had they, I mean, one of the lovely quotes from your book is that human beings are aggressive by definition, a sort of thing. That's that's how we are. So was this aggression showing itself where what you get one group to the to the left and another group to the right and there's hostility between them? There, there is always hostility where, where um, people uh, are, fighting each other for resources. Um, if if you're um, in an area where um, your population is thin and you've got uh, masses of resources, um, aggression is, is limited. But when um, populations naturally tend to rise, so um, quite often exponentially, um, and when the population reaches what we call the holding capacity of the land, um, so the land can no longer provide for it. Then you get aggression building in internal aggression, people sort of killing each other within the group uh, and external aggression, people moving into other people's territories. So um, usually throughout history, um, the, these processes uh, come into work. People are hostile to each other because of the need for resources. And you paint a picture of people sort of being sedentary and staying in one place. Were there some who sort of got a flock of an animal and followed them so that they they might wander around into your patch that you consider is yours? Well, that, that, that would quite often happen. I mean, we can't recognise that so much archaeologically, but that would naturally happen in an ethnographic context. Yeah, uh, that would happen. And people would do exactly what you say. They would um, have a particular set of animals or animal that they re relied on for their main food source, and they would tend to follow that animal through territories. But um, these um, mobile pastoralists, for example, would have recognised territories and other groups would recognize the territories of their, their neighbors. So there would be some sort of rapprochement between them, keeping out of each other's territories. It didn't always work, 
Um, but uh, it, it's um, uh, we, we mustn't think of life as being constantly a, a battle, but it, there was always a, aggression there. And humans by nature um, are protective of themselves and their own and their own land. Um, it, it's, it's going oh, into a different area. But if you go down the Nile, what's become uh, it, it's glaringly obvious how hierarchical the system was you got the people at the top and who could commemorate themselves in this vast way um can you see hierarchies beginning to see beginning to grow in the earlier uh, the more agrarian types um yes in the more agrarian uh, situations um the the, the um uh, there would always be a hierarchy. Humans create hierarchies. They need hierarchies to, to exist. Social groups need hierarchies. So there would always be a hierarchy. Um, it, it's when you begin to get um, more connectiv connectivity and um, uh, more access to rare resources that you see hierarchies really beginning to grow. So if you um, know that... Um, you can trade with someone way over there and get gold and you want gold. Goodness knows why anyone wants gold. It's completely useless, but people do. Um, if you um, do that, um, well, essentially humans are um, acquisitive. Um, so they will want to acquire um, rare, rare resources. And once you get rare resources moving and trade systems building up, um, you can get... Um, uh, those with access to those resources, using the resources to build themselves in the hierarchy. So you put more gold around yourself and fancy rings on your fingers and, and um, things like that, and you are better than someone else. So the hierarchy forms. And uh, you have a vested interest in maintaining a, that hierarchy. But it's all based on, on acquisitiveness. I mean, here, if you're in junior school, you learn about the Stone Age, you learn about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Um, do you get those strata of technologies in Africa as well? Do they work out how to how to uh, get iron from ore? Do they work out how to get gold? Um, you get... Um, uh... Um, yes, um, technological stages in, in Africa, but it's more complex. There is no real Bronze Age in Africa. So it goes, um, most of Africa goes straight from the Stone Age, as it were, in the old nomenclature, into an Iron Age. And um, that, that in itself is a fascinating study. If you look at um, Africa um, in the first millennium BC, um, you see that <clears throat> the earliest iron production takes place roughly between um, 900 600 bc and you get that in the nile you get that in carthage in tunisia where carthage is coming in early but you also get some very early um iron producing areas um right down south um you get, get one in um where the Nok culture developed in, in Nigeria, for example, we get one over in the Congo. And there's a big debate, um, and it's still ongoing, about whether this is iron spread, iron, the knowledge of iron working spreading from Europe and the Far East into Africa, or whether it is indigenous production. And I, th I think um, 
there's no reason why it shouldn't be indigenous production. Um, there's no reason why these different groups of iron producers in um, the more southern part of Africa shouldn't have developed that method themselves, recognized it themselves. But it, it is, uh, to answer your question, it is a, a different sort of stratification from uh, that w which we get in, in Europe and, and the Far East. Do you begin to see quite early on the making of beautiful things that can only be made by people who've got the leisure to be able to make them? There's a picture in your book of a very recognizable camel. I mean, it's not that sophisticated, but it's obviously a camel, and yeah. someone has gone to great trouble to make this camel. So do we see the rise of artisan art? Oh, yes. Yes, I think one of, one of the pieces that I, I illustrate, which I like particularly, is a, a little, um, I think it's ivory or bone, a carving of a female figurine from, from the, the Nile. And it's um, a beautiful little carving, very simple. Um, but as you say, someone had leisure to do it and someone had a compulsion to do it. We don't know whether that was an internal compulsion um, being driven to create something or whether someone said, uh, you know, we need a, a little female idol for uh, to worship or something like that. But um, it means that someone could stop producing food and start producing art. Um, and that is a fairly major um, change from pure hunter-gatherers just living on, on the edge of existence and uh, people with time to spare. And we, you can begin to see the development of specialists. The Nok culture, which I, I mentioned in, um, in Nigeria, dating from about 900 BC to um, about 300 BC. Um, that, that's a very good example. Um, what they, um, this is one of the areas where ironworking um, starts very early on, and it's surrounded by large areas where there is no, no ironworking. So quite clearly, uh, the people who learned how to make iron in the Nok culture um, had something to trade with other people um, because iron is a useful thing. So if they had learned the technology of making iron, they then needed to um, create specialists um, or to give people time to make iron during the working year. Um, and that iron could then be used um, to um, gain other commodities from outside through trade. And, and so you see um, a, a more, I can say leisured, but it wouldn't be leisured, uh, a more... Um, um, an artisan um, level beginning to arise, the iron workers, and then followed this, this amazing development of um, sculpture, um, clay, um, uh, ceramic sculpture. Um, the knock figurines are absolutely stunningly beautiful, very, very original, and way in advance of anything that was happening in, uh, in Britain at the same time. It, it really is art of a very high standard. And um, people must have had an enormous amount of time just to devote to, to this work. Not to mention talent. I mean, they, they take your breath away. They are just wonderful. Um, and other places in Africa that take your breath away, um, the temple in Luxor, uh, just one of the most remarkable places I've ever been. Um, how far back can you trace the importance of the Nile? You say your interest is in communication. Surely the, the Nile must have been number one communication channel. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, the, the, the big 
um, axes of communication are, yes, the Nile, uh, the Red Sea on the, the one side, and of course, the Atlantic coast of Africa on the other. But then you've got <clears throat> developing um, all across the desert. You've got roots developing north-south across the desert, joining uh, when, when the desert really starts to get underway about from about 3000 BC. And um, uh, joining the, the northern strip of Africa, the, the Mediterranean-facing strip of Africa, from the Sahel, this this um, wide rate, this wide band that runs from the Atlantic uh, to to the Red Sea, and um, is very populous. Um, so um, uh, these these routes of of these routes, the Nile is the most spectacular, but the other routes have also got quite a lot of. Um, uh, interest about them and, and places, oases along them, uh, groups um, being very distinctive along them. And um, if you take a trip down the Nile now, you can sort of look from your boat and say, oh, it's almost, it looks like the Bible, but you can see that the population growth there must have been, you use the term exponential, it must have been a fantastic place to go and breed. Uh, yes, and um, what what we see is it, it, it's very interesting. Um, uh, one or two archaeologists have studied um, not just the Nile but the desert on both sides of it for, for considerable distances, and looked at it through time as the temperate as the, the climate got worse and worse and worse, and the desert crept in. And um, uh, what you can see is people, first of all, when the climate is, is mild and damp and so on, people scattered in the desert, what, what is now desert. And as the desert crept in, people move to the Nile and then just focus all, all the way along the Nile. So you've got a natural popula population move into the Nile, um, a limited, limited land available, but very high quality land available, but limited. So uh, you're almost immediately into the situation where people have got to develop a complex society to, to simply exist. Um, it's a difficult um, landscape and it needs organisation uh, to make it enable communities to live. So you get hierarchies developing, you get priesthoods developing, and once you've got a priesthood, um, then you've got people um, sort of uh, demanding to be recognised uh, and to, for their gods to be recognised. And people have to devote labour um, to, to the gods and to the temple. And that's why, why Egypt is so, so special as far as its, its religious architecture is concerned. It is such a concentrated uh, little narrow zone um, that its geography forcing society to develop in that way one of the strands that goes through your book is climate and you finish you round it all off with a look at climate change but you say we as a species arrived we evolved in africa but presumably we evolved at a time and place when climate was what we needed that's right we um uh, the Evolution begins, human evolution, as we were saying, in, in East Africa and the Rift Valley, where, where the, the climate was very, very congenial to, to people. Um, and um, we can see, uh, for example, uh, after the, this very arid period when 
uh, Europe was going, it was in its ice age, but an arid period in Africa. Um, we can see um, people as as the the desert became damper and damper and damper. We moved into this African humid period when the um, Sahara was very very narrow. Um, you can see people from outside moving in, gradually moving in, moving in, moving in, moving in, and uh, colonizing new ecological niches as, as they opened up. And then you can see the reverse happening, which is very exciting. From about 3000 BC, as the desert um, began to take over again, uh, so you can see people being driven further and further and further out to the north, and to the south, and driven particularly into this Sahel band, um, where um, you're getting um, essentially pastoralists and hunter, well, pastoralists with a sort of hunter-gatherer background, moving out of the desert into the Sahel zone, where there are cultivatable plants. There are, there are sorts of millet and rice and things like that. Um, so. Um, the two communities coming together create a, a very well-organized um, sort of agrarian um, uh, economy. And of course, most uh, most of the book, uh, climate and climate change, is happening purely nationally, uh, naturally. Now it's not. And at the end, you make uh, well. I, I find it rather upsetting the way that things are going. Do you, as a as a historian, do you think, oh my goodness me? Well, uh, no. Uh, actually, as an as a human, I do. But as a historian, they're, they're quite different. I think. Um, uh, as a historian, um, you know, I see it in a perspective that uh, that there is con there is always change. There is always tension. The climate is always changing, and has been for ever since the planet has been here. Um, nothing to do with humans. It, it, there's always been climate change. There's a man called Malenkovich who um, uh, studied climate change for the world and showed that it, it goes in cycles. Climate change goes in cycles, and this is all due to um, the obliquity of the Earth and eccentricity in the Earth's uh, axis and so on. So there are um, all sorts of natural features way, way, way beyond our control um, that make the climate change. Um, what um, uh, I, uh, I, so I find climate change fascinating. Um, I do find what is happening in the Sahel very, very distressing at the moment because what, what you're getting there, but it's not, not, a, not, not all bad, but what, what you're getting there is, um, the desertification of of um, the northern edge of the Sahel, which is uh, on, on the southern edge of the Sahara, as it were, uh, and pastoralists who occupied that area, um, moving further and further south into land which is occupied by uh, agriculturalists. There was a classic case, which I quote in the book um, about 10 years ago, where uh, it was, in, I think, in the Sudan, um, where... Um, uh, some pastoralists got on their motorbikes and, and went and beat up agriculturalists um, to the south because the agriculturalists had confiscated the pastoralist animals because they had uh, tr uh, um, trespassed on, on their land. So, um, so here you get climate forcing two different um, systems uh, against each other. And what, what, what we've got in the Sahel at the moment is, is um, the break essentially the breakdown of society 
um, into, um, and we're talking about the group from Mauritania, right through Mali and Chad and uh, right across to Darfur and Sudan, right across, and, and Eritrea and Ethiopia to some extent, right across. Um, because of climate change, you're, you're getting these, these stresses put on society, um, which, which allows the Islamic fundamentalists to move in, it allows the German mercenary, uh, the um, it allows the Russian mercenaries to move in um, uh, and um, make what they can. And it also drives population out. So the um, we are seeing population being driven uh, to the north, but population is also being driven to the south in, into Africa. So um, those are the stresses we're seeing now. But what the, the Africans are trying to do, and I find this very exciting, is they've created this thing called the Great Green Belt. Uh, which is the idea of planting a 15 kilometre, I think, width of trees right across uh, this, this divide between the desert and the non-desert. Um, and it runs from the Atlantic um, to the Red Sea, uh, 7,000 kilometres. Um, and they've done this with enormous success. The idea is to stabilise the land so that the desert doesn't move so much. Um, and to take um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which it does, and also to create sustainable work for people so that they settle and uh, uh, rather than uh, migrate. And um, so far, it is a great success, which is working. And one of the joys of your book is, I didn't know about that. It's being kept very quiet, but there it is in your book. Uh, I am just the general reader. Uh, I'm just intrigued. Is this who you wrote for? Did you just write for the interested person rather than the academic? Well, to be absolutely honest, I wrote for myself. Um, uh, I wanted to under, I, I knew quite a lot about bits of Africa. I wanted to know how it all fitted together and worked. And I thought the only way I could do that was to um, be able to communicate it to someone else. And the best way to communicate it to someone else is to get it all down on paper. So uh, yes, the, the real answer is I was writing for the general reader, but um, uh, it, it requires a certain amount of attention. Uh, and, and there is a lot of um, um, material in the back of the book for the general reader or the student who really wants to follow up the, uh, the, the detailed uh, arguments and the detailed evidence. So it, it is for, um, yes, the the general reader um, who is really curious about the world in which he or she lives. And it reads, it reads like a lab labour of love, was it? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoy writing it. It's Facing the Sea of Sand, published by Oxford University Press, subtitled The Sahara and the Peoples of Northern Africa. You will love it. Professor, Emeritus Professor Barry Cunliffe, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.